When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Welcome to the second and final part of our conversation with Patrick Royce, a sports media legend in Minnesota. If you haven't already, make sure to check out part one for an episode of laughs and great tales from his 60-year career. In this part two, we launch with Royce's memories of twins teams that warm all hearts in Minnesota. Hey, Royce, the twins enjoyed their glory days. You know, when you were no longer covering them as a beat, you were actually the columnist at the time. They won the World Series in 87 when they beat the St. Louis Cardinals. And then in 91, the Twins beat a very young Atlanta Braves club. That, that was really one of the all-time classic World Series. I think you once said Game 7 was like the greatest event in the history of Minnesota sports. Well, maybe 6, 6 and 7, you know, 6. All right, well, 6, you got Puckett making the catch and Puckett, hitting the home run. Hitting the home run, and then 7, you got the 1-0. And uh, it was, yeah, it was, I mean, those last two games were fantastic. The, the 91 series was much better, but 87 is remembered almost more here because it was the first one. And they had a parade that was unbelievable. And uh, for that one, went down uh, Nicollet Avenue in Minneapolis and then went over to St. Paul in the best state capital. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was phenomenal. 80, 87, yeah, as I said, the first one. But Tom Kelly... Uh, you know, it took him forever to, uh, Andy McPhail wanted to hire him as a manager after he was the interim for 23 games. And uh, and Carl Poland was the owner and was afraid of having two guys that young running the team. So we hey. finally let him hire Tom Kelly. And they, uh, they that was almost Thanksgiving by the time they made that announcement that he was coming back. And then the great quote on that is Bob Gibbard, who later became the Rockies general manager, still going. Great, not working anymore, but uh, still, still with us. And Gabby was after they win the seventh game, two o'clock in the morning. There's a little place drinking place reception thing that they have going across the street from the ballpark. And, mm-hmm. and Gabbard's quote was, "We were just trying to get organized, and we won the bleeping World Series." You know, <laughs> that, that was the surprise team. The '91 team was really good. That was a really hellaciously good team. Yeah, Puckett, Herbeck, all those uh, great yeah, players. Yeah, had some of those guys that came up and were uh, terrific players. That was really a good team. Uh, Greg Gagne, the shortstop, always underrated. Terrific shortstop. Uh, they were, you know, they were just they were they were a better team in '91. Okay, Game Six and Game Seven, though, I can the ears are still ringing, right, well, for yeah. anybody who covered those games. Yeah, the tension in the dome, the noise, the Hank, the Homer Hankies are flying. Yeah. What What do you remember about 
particularly game seven, um, you know, Jack Morris going 10 innings and then you're writing that night. Yeah. Um, tell me about, you know, just being in the moment as a, as a columnist. They were holding the papers. I got to tell you about 88, uh, game six, though. The Star Tribune didn't hold that night for uh, all the papers. So we were, you know, over 600,000 back then, back in the glory days. And I think we only made 200,000 papers the next morning. I'm still mad about that. But uh, uh, whatever, you know, what I remember about uh, uh, game six is afterwards, Jack, uh, they, they, run the heroes through the press room down there, you know, and we you're still trying to write. And Jack and Morris, they bring in the starting pitcher, Smoltz and Lil mm-hmm. first, and then Jack Morris. And they said, Jack, uh, what do you think? Yeah, routine question. What do you think about this chance to pitch game seven? And he said, in the, in the words of the late, great Marvin Gaye, oh, let's get it on. <laughs> There's right, I hear that upstairs right at it. I got to kind of start, got to get that in someplace, you know. That's gold, and yeah. the next day, uh, you know, goes Ted and he pitches a shutout. And, uh, yeah, complete game against Smoltz. Greatest performance ever. Yeah. And also, um, you know, Filani Smith doesn't stop it, didn't. If Filani Smith doesn't stop it second, or if they don't turn that, uh, that home to, you know, the back to the pitcher to first base double play, they, they end up getting beat. But, uh, yeah. Well, you once said that you once said that that column was one of your favorites uh, because Tom Kelly after the game was unlike Tom Kelly, who was usually pretty guarded. Well, it was this was my Tuesday column after the foul, but I got to say that uh, I used to tell Morris. By the way, you're the best winner I ever met. You really accept victory well. You're a great winner, but you're the biggest jackass I ever met. After you get beat, he says. That's why I don't get beat that often, bleep hole. <laughs> but uh, he had a point. I got along really well with Kelly, and uh, so now we're an hour and a half after winning Game Seven, and mm-hmm. I went to the office, into his office. I was in there, and I just I kind of sat in a chair, and all the players, you know, Chili Davis comes in, gives him a big hug, and they talk for a minute, and then anyway, I'm in there an hour, and the players are all coming in, and I thought writing that scene an hour and a half after the game's over and his his co-coach of the uh of his fantasy football team was a equipment guy named Lunch McKenzie and I mean you got all these characters and and uh to, you know just just to have that that access there sitting behind the door and uh, as as players are coming in and and talking candidly with them I I didn't say 10 words when I was in there it was just listening to Listening to the thing, the thing, and everybody that came in, and uh, and then uh, the the highlight was lunch. They still don't know how his fantasy football team came out. The TKs, they were still, you know, the TKs. They had other things to worry about. Yeah. Oh, lunch, McKenzie gets his wife on the phone because she was supposed to keep score. You know, it's because what you could go on ESPN and see how your team did back then. You know, you had to keep track and right and uh, and. Mackenzie's wife is telling him, oh, it was great, Tom. And, and Kelly says, that was last night. How did the TKs come out? That was yesterday. <laughs> he, he was, That's the bigger question. Yeah, he didn't, he, now the World Series was won. How did the TKs come out? That was a big question. He's, uh, 
He's been having some health problems. Smartest baseball man I've ever been around. His instincts are, are just uh, immaculate. He's in, he could be grumpy, but his instincts were uh, were fantastic. Yeah, quite a manager. Yeah, he could tell a player in about five minutes. You know, tell if a guy had it or not. Hmm. You mentioned characters around Kelly that and that scene an hour and a half later, and really characters finding characters is something that's oh, yeah. been such a part of your career. Um, you know, you're always willing to go outside of uh, the Twin Cities all around your state and find good stories. And you just became known for that. I mean, well, first of all, you're a character yourself. You were, you were born in a tiny little town. Yep. Your father ran a funeral home. Your family lived upstairs. So you knew what it was like in Minnesota, small towns, right? Oh, yeah. You know, we were, uh, you know, southwest corner of Minnesota, uh, a town of 1,100, Folda. And then all these little towns around there, and my dad was the undertaker. He was a goofball of all time. Because I always said, if, if, a, uh, if a small town undertaker has a good year, 40 funerals, right? 40. We were looking for the magic 40. We, didn't, we weren't wishing our neighbors any ill health, but you needed 40 <laughs> funerals to make it, right? So, uh, so if you had... 20, we're, we're only at 28. We need yeah. a good train wreck. <laughs> we... Uh, you know, it's, we won't be having as much. Uh, we won't be having as good a Christmas if we don't get a couple more in here pretty soon. But but you understood those small towns, yeah. and you were able to understand why Minneapolis and St. Paul uh, appreciated stories from those small towns. Yes, because most people who live in the Twin Cities—not most, but a, a very good share of the people who live in the Twin Cities—came from those small towns. Came from that area. You know, they everybody. What they say in outstate Minnesota still today is, we're going to the cities. We're going to the cities, you know. It was always the cities. And that bet you're going to Minneapolis-St. Paul. And uh, we'd come up four or five times a year, and it was about a four-hour journey back then. And it was just, hey, we're in the cities. There's stuff going on. So, yes, I did appreciate the fact that uh, people, uh, you know, people, these would, if you'd find somebody in one of these towns or write about one of these teams or something, uh, you would, uh, you, you realized what a big deal was. Now, one of the, and this might have been some of the places you worked back in the day, too. In, in the, before 1970, oh, actually before the pros came in at 60, one of the biggest events in the state of Minnesota every year was the state basketball tournament because it was one class, you know, it was mm -hmm. Hoosiers. Well, very close to my hometown, 1960, Edgerton is our Hoosiers. Uh, they won to one class, this little Dutch town, and uh, they actually had nine of They had fewer people than uh, well, Milan, uh, Indiana had, which is the the real, the, the source of the story of Hoosiers. And uh, so I, you know, and, and I, I remember those days that I, the state basketball tournament, one reason I knew what every town where it was in Minnesota, I used to look at the high school basketball scores where they were playing their district tournaments to see who would go to the right. state tournament. And there's a there's a story in our, every town. I've I said about the pandemic, Todd, that uh, you know we went a year there with nothing going on, right? There's nothing to write about. Mm -hmm. And I I I said, you know what? 
Like you find out there's 10,000 stories out there. You just have to have somebody tell you about them and then you go get them, right? Right. And that's uh, that, that was really a, a great period for just going and finding stuff, not going to the ball game. Well, I always appreciated the fact that you were a big city columnist. You would travel throughout the nation, overseas for international events, but you were also willing to take the time to go meet with uh, John Gagliardi, right? Oh, yeah. The St. John football coach. <laughs> you were willing to go see a guy like that who then became rightfully well-known throughout Minnesota, you know, not just because he won four national titles and 489, you know, times a record amount of wins, by the way, but the, but the fact that he was a quirky character. Yes. And you brought that to life. He was, yeah, I mean, he was, I always said, Todd, that uh, when in doubt in the spring and there's nothing to write about, go up and see how Gang's doing because he'll give you something that you don't, that you don't expect. And, uh, and uh, yeah, there, but there's there's just guys like that all over it. I, I, I really do uh, think they're, you know, couple of weeks ago, uh, and he, uh, somebody tells me, hey, there's this gas station out on Minnetonka Boulevard, which is out Highway 69, and a guy still pumps gas for it. He still comes out and washes the window and pumps gas. And uh, He's like the Japanese soldiers on the island didn't know World War II had ended. <laughs> yeah, and he's got, race, he's got a race car out in front. His daughter races at, El at one of the local speedways. So I said, well, I'll go scout him out. Is this the guy, uh, uh, David, uh, David Goodman. I went and scouted him. I said, I'll drive out there and say hello to him and see if there's a column there. I was there about 10 minutes, and I said, okay, this guy's crazy. Uh, I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. I'll get your daughter here, will you? There's a, there's a free column here. I always say free <laughs> column. That's what you're always looking for, the free column. I love it. Set one on a tee, batting yeah, tee for you. Just plan. put it up there, and we got a free day. And, and Todd, as you know, the clubhouses are getting so much tougher. You know, everything's so much tougher than it used to be. To, right, yeah, right. If there are characters in that clubhouse, you're going to have a hard time finding them. And you're, you're not going to be able to sit down with them for 45 minutes at 2 o'clock in the afternoon because the clubhouse opens at Four and as close as at four thirty. Right. Well, think about it. Like, think about the time that you're at Bear Bryant's last game. Yes. You know, they, they beat Alabama, beats Illinois in the '82 Liberty Bowl. You're there, and you interviewed Bear and his buddies about hunting turkeys. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was a couple of years earlier. I was trying to get Bear to talk to Bear, and I think it was '81, so it might have been his second of last year. Well. Like, call up the SAD, and he says, well, come on down uh, the, the week before Auburn because they're off, and he'll hey. see him. I sat in his office for two hours, and then Jimmy Hunter came in, and they talked about turkey hunting for an hour and talked about, you just sat there and listened to him. I mean, calling an SID and saying, hey, can I come down and see the most famous coach in America uh, from the St. Paul paper? And they saying yes. And not today. That ain't happening now. That's not happening right, anymore. Right. Now they they uh, they only talk on Tuesdays, you know, at a, at a mass yeah. press conference. So, what do you recall about that two-hour conversation with Bear Bryant? I just was uh, uh, amazed. I guess it, you know, the, the gruffness you expected in that situation. He was, he was, uh, he was just, uh, just. 
you know, he was having, enjoying his buddies and enjoying life and uh, wasn't worried about Auburn yet, wasn't doing anything. I can, uh, but you could also see him and imagine what he was like when he was young and full of piss and vinegar, <laughs> as, the, as the Texas A&M boys found out. But he was just uh, a real guy. And, uh, and one thing about that last, his last game, where I went to his last game against Illinois in the Liberty Bowl, right? Wasn't it? Right, Illinois right, Liberty. yep. And Eddie Robinson was there getting a... Uh, getting an, uh, an award. The great Grambling coach. I went up and, right. The Grambling coach. And I went up and was, you know, sat in Eddie's hotel room for an hour and a half and ended up doing an Eddie piece later. His wife was up there, a great gal, and talked to Eddie. But it worked out really well because a couple, a few years later, I was at the Doug Williams Super Bowl, Todd. And it's San Diego, remember? They, mm -hmm. you know, they basically pushed us into a garage after it was over. And you had 600 reporters try to get in to talk to people at these podiums in this dump of a garage. And I, even as, even being a well overweight guy, I got pushed coming in and I got pushed and standing next to the wall was Eddie Robinson, Doug, Doug Williams coach from uh, grappling and, uh, and I, a guy I knew from before, and I talked to Eddie for 20 minutes about Doug and said, see you guys later. I'm going upstairs. I got what I need. So I'd rather be lucky than good anytime when you're out covering something. Right. Sometimes you just need to happen to be in the right <laughs> yes. spot at the right moment. That's right. <laughs> that is right. Speaking of football, you were there in 75 at the Met, the old Metropolitan Stadium. When Roger Staubach threw the Hail Mary oh, pass, yeah. the Cowboys beat the Vikings 17-14. You're in the locker room after the game. I mean, that's one of the most famous plays in NFL history. Yeah, I was in the, uh, I was doing the Dallas locker room. And, uh, and uh, dude, I, I knew everybody was mad because they, you know, they'd throw the whiskey bottle and hit, Hit uh, the, the Armin Terzian was the referee that, that was the official. Oh, yeah, hit him in the head with a whiskey bottle. Corby's bottle. I believe it was Corby's. There's been a discussion, but I think it's been misreported. What, what type? It's been misreported as to what the bottle was. It was a pint of Corby's, I believe. Uh, came out of the right field bleachers. But the great. You know what happened that day in addition to this an unbelievable thing? Sid charged in, this is where the referee's room used to be open, right? You just knocked on the door and the reporters, you went in. And uh, Sid stormed in there. Armin looks like a Revolutionary War soldier. You know, he got his head all wrapped up, blood coming out. And Sid starts MFing him for screwing the Vikings out of, <laughs> out of going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> and the next year, we had pool reporters. The next yeah. year, we the Sid created the pool reporter rule by <laughs> screaming at Arvind Terzian. But it was something. I was in there talking to Drew Pearson. There were six, seven people in. And there, and all of a sudden, here comes the people from the other club, uh, locker room. And, you know, the, the locker room, at the visiting locker room at Met Stadium was built for about 20. And you had all of a sudden, you had 200 in there. And everybody's, you know, the, the, the Cowboys were shocked that, that that the Vikings were uh, felt that I mean you could see at the end the Vikings are screaming and Tarkin was screaming but 
the Cowboys are in there just kind of celebrating, having a good time, and then everybody comes in. The Vikings say you screwed them out of them in. Oh, and he deserved it. It was, it was a raucous place. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast. What was the temperature in the press box at Met Stadium, Metropolitan Stadium, in a late-season Vikings game? Well, they'd get the heat going pretty good, but uh, if you had to go outside to the boys' room, it was we could get a little cool out there sometime. Jim Murray wrote a great column about, uh, I don't know if it was that game, it was one of the playoff games he came to it, because the Rams kept coming up there and getting beat, you know, in the, in the glory days. And Jim Murray got uh, temporarily locked in the men's room at uh, after, like, he finished writing it, two hours after the game, and he got, they had a pound on the door, and somebody finally heard him. But he wrote a column about what it would have been like to spend the winter in the men's room at uh, <laughs> at stadium. It would have been cold. That was one of my favorite moments, by the way. I was at the first uh, Pittsburgh Super Bowl, which was their third one in New Orleans. And uh, I was a drinking man then, and uh, I'd been out that night, and you know, was really hung over. We're going the next day. We're going out there the next day. And I come in and that, that Super Bowl, you know, was supposed to be played in the Superdome, but they never got it built in time. So it was, it was that two lane stadium, terrible, right? Yeah. Terrible two lane stadium. I walk in and sitting in the second, I'm a, what am I in 1974? I'm a 30 year old, nobody. And, uh, and I, I walk in and it's Red Smith on my left me and then Jim Burry on my right. And I get in there, I'm hung over, and I said, here we are, boys, three of the greatest sports writers that ever lived. <laughs> Red Smith. They're looking at you like, who are you? Red Smith laughed, and Jim Burry gave me the dirtiest look you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> but I later on got to sit next to Red for the uh, for the uh, 81 World Series uh, in, in the auxiliary press box at the Yankee Stadium for all, all three, all four. Oh, three games were played at uh, Yankee Stadium because the Dodgers came back and won the last four. So I got to sit next to Red, and he was a great, great guy. Well, you mentioned your drinking days, and this has a football theme to it, but when the Vikings were coached by Jerry Burns, didn't you guys once have a road trip, I think it was in Tampa Bay, where he just invited the writers up to his hotel room? No, uh, I was not drinking anymore, but uh, Birdsy, yeah, the Mike Lynn got fired up because they started the year one and six or something, and then they won five in a row, and Lynn thought they were going to do something. So he, he he decided to work out down in Florida, in Orlando, before the uh, before they played Tampa. And uh, 
And so we were all down there. We went, you know, we used that scam to go down there. <laughs> and uh, and Merrill Swanson was the PR guy. And Merrill had a room upstairs and he had a bathtub full of beer. And uh, Love it. Love it. Bernie on. And so we're up there. We're doing our post. Instead of doing our post game, post practice interview with Birdsey, he said, oh, come on up to the hotel room. Birdsey will come up there. Well, Bernsey starts telling stories about Iowa and Forshevsky and Lombardi and everything, and it goes on for like three hours. There's about four of us reporters up there. Three guys are drinking some beers, and uh, Bernsey's drinking beer. And finally, after about three hours, Bernsey goes into the bathroom to, to relieve himself, and there's no beer. So he comes out and said, see you later. And he, and he starts leaving because he says, and we say, Bernsey, what happened at practice today? And Bernsey says, you know, he's going down the hall. He says, boys, when the, when the beer runs out, the bullshit stops. And he keeps going down. <laughs> so we're all, we all got these great stories, but we don't, we don't know if somebody broke his leg at practice or not. <laughs> he was the greatest character of all time. You were there for you were there when he dropped like eighteen f bombs oh, uh, in a post game press conference after he won. Yeah, after the <laughs> Schnelker, the Schnelker thing is a see that was an unheralded. You know, everybody talks about the rants. You know, when you got the, you know, you got the Lee Eliot rant, and you got the Jim Moore rant. But Burgess was kind of this hidden gem until a few years ago. Dead, some guy from Deadspin when Deadspin was Deadspin. Mm-hmm. called me on the 29th anniversary and said, I just ran across this thing. And he said, we got to, you know, this was made for Deadspin. And he, so he, he interviewed me about it. And, and my highlight was that I got him started again. See, he, uh, he, was, he went about three minutes of F-bombs. But then I said, how about, how about the way the crowd booed when Schnelker's Schnelker's, uh, when they showed Schnelker on the scoreboard, and then he went into, then he just went into F-bomb after F-bomb. Just, yeah, you opened the Bombay doors the best again. part of that, though, was as he's, as he's leaving now, <laughs> under, his, under his breath, he says, fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> that was his last word for this, <laughs> for the fans. Oh. He was, he was the greatest. He was unbelievable. Well, the characters are what made it so much fun, right? I mean, that's the thing. Funny thing is, his team was hard to get along with. And he'd scream at us all the time and give us hell, but you'd always end up laughing because the next day, next day he'd be great. He, uh, you know, that he had one just as good, but that nobody has a tape of it. After they, the year they made their playoff run, so 87, right? I mean, they made the run, they backed. But they they lost their last two. Yeah. That was the year of the of the uh, scab ball players too, yeah. and uh, replacements we called them. Uh, union guys call them scab balls. But anyway, scab ballers. But anyway, see that team lost all three of those games, so they were actually an eight and four team at one time. But then uh, they they lost their last two, and then, and they lost the last one on Saturday, so it looked like they weren't going to make the playoffs. Uh, then I think St. Louis lost to a bad Dallas team, and then they backed into the playoffs and made their run. But uh, we went out there Sunday morning to see Bernsey, and it basically the 
the little interview room then was about big as two closets with a bathroom next to it, you know. Wait, was, was there beer in that bathroom too? And not only didn't have it, uh, but six, uh, there was a, this was 10 of the morning, 11 of the morning. And Bob Sansevier from the St. Paul paper asked, he says, says your team doesn't have a killer instinct. Or he said, doesn't seem like your team has a killer instinct. And he went on screaming, killer instinct, killer instinct, you uh, jackasses, you know, I, 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 I just, he just, and then in this little tiny room, he's just yelling, killer instinct. But nobody, we weren't taping that, we were writing, you know, so we're all <laughs> going, nobody has it. Nobody has a tape of the killer instinct. Quite was fantastic. Right. So do you do you have do you have a favorite sports rant by an athlete or a coach when you're covering something? Well, probably Burnsies, but uh, yeah. yeah, at me, aimed at me. Yeah, I was aimed writing at you. Uh, for sports. I was the sporting news correspondent for four or five years because I, I at the end of my baseball tenure, I did, and then I kept it for about four or five more years, and uh, so. Uh, we had a, a, a guy who became a, I got, became a better, I got to be friendly with him when he was a Red Sox hitting coach, but Ron Jackson, uh, was a, in the crew trade. He was part of the crew trade in 78 and, uh, and he, he had a nickname Papa Jack. Everybody called him Papa Jack. And I was writing the sporting news that winter and, and I talked about, writing about his lack of RBIs and I said, they might start calling Papa Jack Papa up in the sporting news. You know? <laughs> but I never thought anything of it. It's, this was like in December or sometime. I show up in Fort Myers in Orlando, that, and he comes at me in the dugout, and he's got a bat, and he's a big, strong guy. I never felt like he was going to hit me with the bat. He wouldn't have required it. But, man, he was hot. That was about as hot as anybody's ever been. <laughs> uh, you know, because I didn't, I didn't even remember what was going on. And then all of a sudden he starts screaming, pop up, pop up, you. <laughs> well, sometimes the outrage is, I mean, think about it. When you write something and the community becomes outraged, yes. then you're really in the, you know, then you're really in the fish barrel. And that happened to you oh, in, the, uh, in March of 91. Now, you have said that this particular column, you said that episode changed me. Uh, you know, in all seriousness, tell us about that column and how it changed you. March 2, 1992, not that I remember it, but uh, I uh, was on a road trip up to the Iron Range because it gets some stories, and then there was going to be a boxing match in Duluth on Friday night, and that was going to be my column for Saturday because I think... Uh, Michael Moore, remember him, M-O-O-R-E-R, a good fighter was fighting up there. I was going to do that. Well, it fell through. The fight fell through. So I'm writing. I said, what am I going to do? I'm going to make some witty remarks here, right? So my first remark was, this is during the Iraq War, and we had Clem Askins, who I got along with great. I love Clem, but he was, he could, Talk himself out of a of a band loss better than anybody. He really was an excuse maker, and and I so this column was so serious that my lead was that uh, if if Tariq Aziz loses his job as as uh, Saddam's excuse maker, uh, Clem could get it. Clem could take over for him. It was like 
you know, I was comparing Clem to Tariq. Uh, what was Aziz? It was a spokesman that was on TV all the time leading up to the Iraq war. So that was the start of this yeah. notes. Yeah, that was. Okay, and then from there. I didn't know it. I'd seen a couple of, one, I went to a junior college game that week to see Minneapolis Community College's men's team and the girls, the women's game was beforehand and it was just awful. And then I saw another, I was in another game and saw the women's game and it was terrible. And I, I, I wrote some of them, how come they, how come it hasn't improved more? How come women's basketball hasn't improved more? I said, it still remains tiptoed ball throwing. That's the, that's the line. That was the line. That struck a nerve in the community. They had, uh, this is this much, this is a Minneapolis paper now. I was in the Star Tribune, so bigger, bigger audience. Don Shelby, a local newsman who had two daughters, uh, a popular anchor down had two daughters playing, wrote a 35-inch editorial that they ran in the paper. And uh, there was, my stepson was going to school over here and, and his best buddies, Sister was on the basketball team, and they were, they started a petition to get rid of me. And it was all over. If, if it was the Internet age, if, if it was the Internet age, social media age, I don't think I would have survived. So, in mm. my first attempt to, uh, you know, because I went to spring training the next morning, didn't think anything of it. And on Wednesday, I get a call, not from the editor, from the publisher. <laughs> That's not good. All when the publisher's calling you, it's no, not good. All hell's breaking loose. And I said, oh, I don't know. Okay, we'll talk about it when I get back, see how things go. I had 400 letters maybe because you still had to write a letter. We weren't even emails yet. And then uh, so my first, they said, yeah, you're gonna, you better do an apology. So my first attempt at an apology was I was going to write, you know, kind of a soft, criticism letter run and then have a kind of a defiant response and then by the die it, that it, if you read down it was all the the first letters were bold and it was okay you win down in the down at the bottom it was me cowering for uh for uh you know uh forgiveness and the guy threw it back at me and said that ain't gonna work. <laughs> That's not business. So then I wrote. So they spiked that then one. Then I wrote an apology that, uh, and I, but I really did. Uh, it, it got me thinking, you know, that uh, you know we're trying to. Uh, we didn't let girls play sports until uh, the mid seventies. You know, go to a basketball game and try to compare it to watching a men's basketball game. And uh, I became a uh, a big proponent. I have said, in fact, that. Uh, I think probably the biggest event of uh, my lifetime as a sports writer is uh, Title IX because you look back, how did we get, how did manhood get away with it for 50 years? Mm. How did you get away with it, you know? So, right. it's, uh, and, and of course it also helps to have a granddaughter who's playing hockey and stuff and you go to, yeah. you go watch and get, but yeah, I've, uh, I, I even made peace with the controversial Chris Bowles, the, uh, that was the women's athletic director at U. She could start a, she could start a riot in a nunnery, man. She was, she was uh, hard-nosed, never satisfied. But this year I, I did a, I called her up on a, on a, on a 50, uh, to do the 50-year Title IX thing, and I did it. And she said to me, uh, she texted, I said, I need a duck in. She texted me back and said, uh, 
I don't talk to uh, I don't talk to uh, flaming or raging sexists unless they're reformed. And she said, "Oh, that's right, you're reformed." So then we had a long, <laughs> long talk, and it was uh, it was great. Well, it showed it showed that you actually, in the moment, you thought about it. You thought, you know what, I'm wrong. Yep. You know, you learn from it, it right? It, like you said, it the episode changed you. Yeah, it did. To, you know, to, to, those columns are out there. You know, hey, women's athletics has given us twice as many places to go for uh, columns, right? There's uh, columns out there. Uh, you know, you add a whole gender, you get a lot more. Uh, you get a lot more options. That's uh, that's the whole right. That's the whole life. The whole life now is yeah. finding one more. Right, finding one more cow. Right. Well, I just think it's impressive that you that you were able to at an advanced part in your career say, you know what? All right, I screwed up. I'm going to think about this, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to learn. And, and then, like you said, you became a, a big advocate of of women's athletics. And uh, although I did get in trouble again because the Stanford. Uh, uh, we had the final four here in 95, 95, the first time UConn won one, what, 95 or six. And Stanford came in as a favor and uh, was terrible. UConn just ate their lunch. They couldn't move and they got eaten up. And I had a, a joke comparing the Stanford women's team to their mascot, the tree that didn't go over well with some of the <laughs> hostesses of the team. But I said, Hey, if it was a men's team that played like that, I would have written the same thing. So, well, you know. well irreverent to the end, yes, right? That's true. I mean, when you think about it, um, all the different people you've met over the years, the characters, the places, international, national, in the Twin Cities, throughout the state of Minnesota, uh, you've always been able to find those stories, the characters, the things behind the surface, below the surface. Um, and I think you, you brought those all to life in a way that's been so entertaining over the years. And, um, you know, it's just been, it's just been quite a, quite a career. Yeah. It's uh, been a while. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know, uh, my contract's up after this year. We'll see. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I'm, uh, you know, I still enjoy it. That's the thing. Why, why are you still doing it? They say you want to be the next Sid. No, I like, I like sitting down and writing something. I don't do much, uh, radio. What I was doing, uh, more radio, it was a little, it was a little tougher. But now this is this is what I got. So I, I really enjoy it, writing three columns a week. Well, the people of Minnesota have enjoyed uh, reading and listening to you over the years, and they've been outraged at times, and laughed at times, and learned many things over the years from you. And uh, I know they appreciate everything you've given to sports journalism there. And I know I appreciate personally that you took the time to uh, share these stories with us on this uh, podcast. All right, Todd. Thank you, sir. And uh, I got to uh, I gotta run downtown now and write a column about a 16-year-old auto racer who is from uh, Minnesota, of all places, and he's running, driving for Joe Gibbs, which is a pretty good. Uh, he's a young prospect. Wouldn't it be something if we were back covering Daytona again because of a Minnesota kid? Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. 
and be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers. Every episode of Double Down with Breslow is packed with insider tips, deeply skilled analysis, and in-depth discussions. Don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting. Listen to Double Down with Breslow on the Evergreen Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Double Down with Breslow, the business of sports betting podcast.